All right, let's go ahead and get started. Grateful for the good crowd we have out here for Sunday School this morning. It's been a while since we've actually been in the scriptures because we've been doing the doc- documentaries over the past few weeks. And when we were on lockdown, there was a special uh, Sunday school lesson just for the online service. So now we're going to get back into Genesis chapter 41, and we're going to pick it up where we left off in the story of Joseph. And Joseph is about to interpret, or, um, or he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and so uh, Pharaoh is about ready to address Joseph after the fact that he interpreted this dream. So before we go any further, let's open up with a word of prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for our health and strength. We want to thank you for our salvation and our personal and intimate relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that uh, even though the world is in turmoil and chaos, you are still God, you are still on the throne, and nothing takes you by surprise, and this is all part of your plan. And I pray that you would just reveal to us uh, what we play, the role we play, what our part is in this great scheme, this great plan that you have. Because you've gifted each and every one of us with unique gifts and talents in order to glorify your name and fulfill your will. Uh, Heavenly Father, you you even told us that uh, we are no longer your servants, but you called us friends. Because now you let us in on what you're doing. And a slave doesn't know what his master does, but friends do. And so, Lord, we thank you that we are not only your slaves, but we are your friends. We are your sons and daughters. We are co-heirs with Messiah Yeshua. So we thank you for these things. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds this morning as we delve into your word. Help us to understand the linguistic and historical and cultural context that we find this passage in and how to bring it into the 21st century so we could apply it to our lives and understand your word better and how how supernatural and intricate it really is. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 41, beginning with verse 37. Um, Joseph, just to kind of recap, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he says, this is what you need to do about it. You need to start stockpiling food in order to prepare for this famine that's coming. And so all of these plans and ideas that Joseph relayed to Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh agreed to. He said in verse 37, The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. So not only was Pharaoh pleased, but all of Pharaoh's advisors, who could have whispered in the Pharaoh's ear and says, Ah, come on, you're going to listen to this, this Hebrew slave? You know, are you gonna, you know uh, it may sound good on the surface, but your majesty, I don't think it's going to work out. But to, not only to impress Pharaoh, but to impress the advisors also says something as well. They're like, wow, we never thought of this. You know, this is a better plan than we could have come up with. with. So, um, and, and this would have never happened. They would have really never accepted Joseph's proposal um, if the Egyptians at that time were from the Canaanite people, were from Ham. Because you remember the Hyksos conquered the Egyptians, and they took over rulership. So all of Egypt was still full of these Canaanite Egyptians, whereas the ruling class now had become the Hyksos, which were part of the Semitic peoples, which were related, they were cousins to Joseph. And so because they were of the same ethnicity uh, as Joseph, that's probably one of the more reasons why they also um, gave a little bit more credence to what Joseph had said. And so if the Pharaoh was a Canaanite, 
uh, ruler at the time, he probably wouldn't have even considered what Joseph said, but because he was a Hyksos and Semitic, um, he, um, he took what he said into consideration. And also, this is pretty impressive as well, because if you remember the legend that, that uh, we talked about last time um, regarding how Joseph came to the Pharaoh, he was taken out of the dungeon, he was cleaned up, brought before the Pharaoh, and before he could address the Pharaoh, or at least um, give him the advice on what to do about the dream and the interpretation of it, according to the book of Jasher, and Jasher chapter 49, he had to ascend these steps. There was 70 steps to get to the Pharaoh, and each step represented one of the 70 people groups of the world, and he had to know that language because Egypt was a, a big dog on the world stage at that particular point in time. They traded with all of the known peoples all over the world. So, you know, there were people in the Egyptian kingdom that knew all the 70 languages, and to be in government, you had to be familiar According to tradition and legend and Jasher, you had to know these 70 languages. So we know at least that uh, Joseph definitely knew Hebrew. He probably knew maybe some of the trade languages that were around his area, and he definitely knew Egyptian. But to know all the other languages, likely not. So this was a miracle where God downloaded the information about these 70 languages, and miraculously, he addressed the king in 70 different languages and made his way to the top of the throne, and uh, uh, the Pharaoh accepted him. So, okay, let me look at my notes here just for a second. Okay, all right, so uh, let's read verse 37 again and read to verse 39. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. Obviously, they were impressed with his idea and impressed with his aptitude for language and skill and diplomacy. Verse 38, and he said to them, uh, Pharaoh said to them, can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? Now, here in the English, in the Christian Standard Bible, it says God's, capital G, which is talking about the one true God. But if Pharaoh's saying this, I, I think he probably means God's plural. And you'll find other translations where it'll say God's because the Hebrew word that's used for God is in the plural. So we have to understand the context of the scripture, whether to translate it as God, singular, or God's in plural. So we know that Pharaoh was a pantheist. He, he even thought that he was part God himself. But he worshipped the Egyptian pantheon, and he believed in the other gods of the other nations that surrounded him. And so, I, you know, probably a better translation is, can we find anyone like this man who has the God's spirit within him, or the spirit of the gods in him? Because at this time, Pharaoh really didn't believe that Yahweh, the God of Joseph, was the only God, or the supreme God, or the one true God. He could have implied that you know, Joseph's God, the spirit of Joseph's God is within him. So he could have implied that. So verse 39, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God, and maybe he's implying your God, since God has made all these things known to you, which that would probably be the implication because Joseph kind of said as a preface that I don't, I can't interpret your dream. I don't know what your dream means, but the God I serve does. So, um, you know, that implication of your God. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all, thing, all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. All right. 
So the interpretation of the dreams and his suggested plan for what was going for what was coming caused Pharaoh to declare this, even more so if legends of knowing all the languages of the world to be true. So um, he probably even recognized, okay, even though I know that this Joseph character probably wasn't a slave to begin with, his story about being sold off into slavery was probably true because he doesn't have any calluses, doesn't have any scars. You know, he, he carries himself uh, more dignified than just a, com- a, a commoner or a slave. So, but even so, he's, he probably doesn't know all the languages of the world like we do. So for Joseph to not only give him the interpretation of the dream, but to come up with a plan to, um, uh, to effectively deal with this famine that's coming. And on top of that, somehow miraculously knowing all the languages, this is the reason that uh, Pharaoh said, your God is definitely with you because nobody could have done this but your God, not only to, to interpret the dream, but also to have a game plan afterwards and to know all these 70 languages. So obviously, your God, his spirit is within you. Uh, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. Now, um, interestingly enough, Joseph was a very intelligent young man. Uh, There is a documentary that I highly recommend, and I think if you go, if you have a Roku or Apple TV or Fire Stick, or even if you go online, you can download uh, Tubi, T-U-B-I, and uh, look for Patterns of the Exodus. So in the second documentary of this series, Patterns of the Exodus 2, the Moses controversy, the whole documentary is about people doubting that Moses wrote the five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They say, oh, you know, Moses, he was just, you know, he, he, he didn't know the languages. He didn't write this. But for people to say that Moses didn't write this is calling the Messiah a liar. Because in the Gospels, Jesus attributes the five books of Moses to Moses. Moses literally wrote those. So they were doubting that the Hebrew people at this time had a language. So this is a very fascinating documentary, Patterns of the Exodus 2, the Moses Controversy. This guy goes into great scholarly and archaeological detail and proves that Joseph was the one who came up with the Paleo-Hebrew language that was based loosely on the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Because the original Paleo-Hebrew, which differs much from the Hebrew letters we use today in modern Hebrew, the original Paleo-Ancient Hebrew was more of a pictorial language. So each letter was a picture, and it represented something. And you put these little pictures together, and the pictures that make up a word actually define the word. For instance, like fire. Uh, fire is ash, which is aleph, sheen. Aleph was kind of like an ox head, which represented strength. Sheen looked like flames of fire. You know, so, uh, and, and it represented teeth. It represented something that was destructive. So, uh, uh, destruction by strength was the definition of fire. So, it's it kind of interesting. Um, so, um, we think that Joseph is the one who came up with the original Paleo Hebrew language. It was taught to his people, and therefore, Moses definitely knew it because archaeology has found that the path that they took during the Exodus and the different stops they've made, they found these Paleo-Hebrew writings in caves and on walls and on different places where the Israelites had stayed on their way to the Promised Land. So it just lends more credence that Moses is the author. little sidetrack there. So verse 40, it says, um, verses 40 and 41, 
Pharaoh's talking to Joseph. He says, you will be over my house and my people, and they will obey your commands. Only I, as king, will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all of the land of Egypt. So it's interesting how Joseph was always second in command wherever he went. He first was at Potiphar's house as a slave, worked his way up from the lowliest slave to second in command of the house. He was the major domo. He was the the custodian of the house. And Potiphar uh, gave Joseph all of the responsibilities. He didn't worry about a single thing uh, about how his household run. The only thing he worried about was what he ate. Joseph was in charge of everything else. And then when he was falsely accused of rape and then thrown in the dungeon as a result, he was the lowliest prisoner, bottom rung of the ladder, and the warden moved him up after a period of time to basically the head trustee of the prison. He was second only to the warden himself. So he kept on moving himself up to these second-in-command positions, and now we find he goes from the second-in-command of the prison to the second-in-command of the entire nation of Egypt. So if it, it, you know, uh, kind of like if we want to put it in a modern day understanding, we know that that Canada and England is still subservient to the queen. We still respect the queen. The queen's still on our money. We're still part of the Commonwealth. But yet the prime minister is Justin Trudeau. The prime minister of, you know, of Britain is, you know, I forget who it is currently, but there's a prime minister. So he's the one who, who's the front man. He's the one who you see all the time. The queen is really kind of in the background. And so Pharaoh kind of moves into the background, but there's a reason for this. There's, a, there's a, actually a very nefarious reason for this. Because Joseph, being the front man, he gets the brunt of all the bad stuff that comes. When the economy is bad... Does the queen get blamed for the bad economy? No, Justin Trudeau is going to get blamed for the bad economy. So anything that bad happens as a result of Joseph's plan that he wants to initiate that Pharaoh approved, Joseph's going to get the slack for that. He's going to be the one to blame for that, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh smartly moves off into the background and says, yes, I'm still king. I'm still Pharaoh. I still run this nation. I still rule. I'm still descended from the gods, but this guy I'm putting in charge because I trust him. So if anything goes wrong, don't blame me. Blame him because I'm giving him all the power and the authority. The power and the authority that I have, I'm giving to him. So maybe this might be one of the reasons why the Egyptians start really hating the Hebrews after they start coming in and start multiplying in the land of Goshen because they remember Joseph. Because ultimately what happens with Joseph, even though Joseph saved Egypt's life, as a result of what they had to do for their lives to be saved, they ended up becoming in, uh, a serfs of Egypt. They, first, they give all their money to buy grain. Their money runs out. Then they give all the livestock. Their livestock runs out. They end up giving all their land. And after that, they had to sell themselves in order to survive the seven years of famine. Can you th and, and I can imagine that these Egyptians probably you know, didn't like their Hyksos rulers, first of all, because they were Semitic and not Canaanite. Second of all, this, this Joseph guy, even though he saved our lives, he's taking everything from us, and now we're not free people. We're serfs, and, and on our land, we work the land for Pharaoh. Pharaoh owns everything now, and just imagine how uh, uh, angry that this made 
the Canaanite Egyptian people towards the Hyksos and towards Joseph. So when the Canaanite Egyptians rise back up to power again and expel the Hyksos from Egypt, that is why it says there came a Pharaoh to power that didn't know Joseph or didn't recognize Joseph. That's why. That's the reason that that scripture is there. Okay. Um, where was I? All right, right here. So Joseph's past as being second, second in command of Potiphar's house, being second in command of the warden in the prison, his past prepared him for the future. And as I said, he would kind of like be like the prime minister or the vice president, so to speak. But as a result, Joseph becomes the fall guy, the scapegoat, and the whipping boy. Now, verse 42, it says, Pharaoh removed his signet ring, which removing the signet ring is basically like allowing him to sign your check. You give him the authority to write his name. You know, like there's, like there's certain people that are allowed to maybe sign my name you know, to use my name, and they have the authority to use my signature. Therefore, if they're using my signature, they're using my authority. They could easily abuse that, write checks that I didn't intend for them to write or what have you. But this is what a signet ring is. A signet ring is like somebody's signature. And when you have that signature, you have somebody's name, you have their authority. Back in the ancient times, it was believed that if you knew the true name of a god or the true name of a demon, that you could have control over them because you knew their true name. Why do you think that Jacob, when he was wrestling with the angel, said, what is your name? And he said, it's not, my name's not important, but your name's going to be Israel. Because J Jacob thought, well, if I can't conquer this guy, then if maybe if I knew his name, his divine name, I can have some sort of authority or power over him. So knowing the true name of a deity... Uh, meant that you had some sort of manipulative power over them. So we see that the, uh, Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring, which is basically giving him his uh, signature. And then it says, um, Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments. Fine linen, linen garments always was a symbol of nobility, symbol of the rich, symbol of purity, uh, symbol of royalty, symbol of a high status, because uh, linen was very expensive. Uh, the the, the uh, fine linen was very expensive. And it said he placed a gold chain on his neck. This gold chain was like, um, like a symbolic identifier. So like in Catholicism, if you see a guy in a black robe wearing a huge gold cross, well, you know he's probably the, a priest. You know, buy that necklace. And so certain people wore certain necklaces to kind of symbolize their rank or their position. So this, this, uh, this gold chain was some sort of indicator of Joseph's new uh, rank and new authority. Kind of like in the military where, uh, you know, like on Star Trek, you know, you see they have pips on the collar. And depending on how many pips and what the color of the pips are de determines what rank. So that if you have four pips on your collar, you're the captain. If you have three pips, you're the commander, you know, and if you have just different things like that. So this chain was kind of indicative of his position. Uh, all right. So the ring, the garment and the chain represented authority. And this was the fulfillment of the dreams that Joseph had before he was sold into slavery. The two dreams that people would be bowing down to him. 
Not only that, but it was kind of a throwback to Joseph's coat of many colors, because if you remember that lesson, the coat of many colors was a special coat given to the firstborn or given to the one that the patriarch of the family intended to be next in line after he passed away. That's why his brothers were so jealous of him, because this coat of many colors meant that Joseph was going to be in charge and over them, this cocky little teenage boy. And they couldn't stand that. They, could, they didn't like that. So the fine linen garments and the chain and the ring was kind of symbolic of that coat of many colors, kind of, and also reminding Joseph of the dreams that he had, and they were coming to fruition and to fulfillment. Verse 43 says, He, Pharaoh, had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and his servants called out before him, Make way! So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Now this chariot, it says... Um, he had Joseph ride his second chariot. Now, in the United States, you have Air Force One and Air Force Two. Who rides in Air Force One? The president. Who rides in Air Force Two? The vice president. You know, you also have a helicopter version, which is called Marine One and Marine Two. So Air Force Two and Marine Two is always given to the vice president. And so this is kind of like this, the, the Pharaoh's second chariot would be like Marine One or would be like Air Force One. And again, it symbolized his power, his authority, and his rank. Now, he had Joseph ride his second chariot, and his servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over the land of Egypt. Do you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Jesus and the triumphal entry. Joseph was riding a chariot, which probably had some sort of stallion or whatever, and it represented the power and the authority of, 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 of Egypt's throne. And they were saying, make way. Well, when Jesus came on the triumphal entry, he came in on a donkey, which that donkey represented peace, but it still represented authority. And it said that the people put palm branches and kind of made a, a red carpet, so to speak, of palm branches. And people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know. And so they were recognizing Jesus as the Messiah at that time or the hope of being Messiah. You know, he was making his way to, to the temple. And uh, because right after that, he cast out the money changers. So they thought, hey, he's going to ascend the throne. He's going to take the rightful place on the throne of David. But that, you know, so it kind of reminds me of Jesus and the triumphal entry here. And uh, also, let's see, uh, verse, verse 44, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. This reminds me of the Great Commission. Where Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth, therefore go make disciples of all nations. Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me. Who gave him that authority? God the Father. So Joseph, who gave all power and authority to Joseph? Pharaoh. So we can see that connection there. And see how those stories parallel. Okay, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. Verse 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name uh, Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Very interesting passages here. Let's take a little bit of time. 
Uh, Zaphnath Panea has several meanings. It means he who explains what is hidden. And that's exactly what Joseph did when he explained the hidden meaning of Pharaoh's dreams, which, you know, uh, talked about the prophetic famine that was coming. Zaphath Panea also means God speaks, he lives. It also means he who is called life. Now, Zaphath Panea, he who is called life, or he who speaks and lives, he who explains what is hidden, this is all symbolic of Yeshua, because Yeshua means Savior, the one who saves life. Yeshua is the one who, who reveals the hidden secrets of Scripture, the hidden secrets of prophecy. So we can kind of see a parallel of these names and these titles here too. Now, Zaphonath Panea is a Hyksos word, so it's kind of a hybrid of Hebrew and Egyptian. Um, let, let me see if I can find, think of a parallel here. Like, for instance, there is a dialect called Yiddish. Yiddish is Hebrew and German. Uh, it's a Hebrew-German hybrid. And so the Hyksos language was kind of like a Hebrew-Egyptian hybrid as well. And so uh, Joseph got this name, uh, Zaphnath Panea, which kind of gives lends more credence that who was ruling Egypt at this time was the Semitic Hyksos people. Uh, okay, now it talks about in verse 45 that Pharaoh gave Joseph this name, which is like a title. Now, Zapathenea, we already talked about what that means. When I went to Nigeria, uh, they made me a chief in the Ibu tribe, and they gave me a name, and that name was, was a title as well. So this served as a name, as, as the Egyptian name of Joseph, but it also served as his title. Now, my title in Ibu land is um, uh, Odum Biara Anaigbo Nuani Diuto, big long title. But it says, the brother, who, um, the lion who came to Ibu land is a sweet brother. That's what my name means in Ibu. That's my title. That's my chieftain title. But yet I have an Ibu name, which is Tochoku. Tochoku means uh, praise God, just like my Hebrew name, Judah means praise God. So there's kind of some uh, cultural connections there. So let's talk about Joseph's wife. Now, again, because the Egyptians that or because the Egyptians were the Canaanite people, but those who ruled the Egyptians at this time were the Hyksos, they were Semitic, which means they were relatives of Joseph. They were cousins. So we know that there is a prohibition against the sons of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to marry Canaanite women. So we know this is another indication that the Hyksos ruled at this time because Joseph would not have accepted a Canaanite wife, an Egyptian wife. She was a Hyksos wife. Therefore, she was Semitic. And there's a legend behind who this is. Now, I don't know if this legend is true. I think it's very fascinating, but because it's in... Uh, Jewish legend and Jewish literature, I, I wanted to bring it out. There is a legend that Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, that Potiphar is the same as Potiphar. Because you can have two titles and you can wear several different hats. Just like uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian, you know, he was also called Ruel. But yet it was the same person. 
And that was Moses' father-in-law. So we have Potiphar and Potiphera, which a lot of Jewish scholars say, look, they're one and the same. He was not only the bodyguard, he was not only the, the, um, uh, the kind of the secret service guy to Pharaoh, but he was also the priest of On. Asenath, however, it, the legend says that Asenath is, was adopted. And that Asenath was actually the daughter of Dinah. Remember who Dinah was? She was the only daughter that, I mean, I'm sure that uh, Jacob had many, many more daughters besides Dinah, but the reason that she's mentioned in Scripture is because she's important. And we remember that, that uh, you know, um, uh, Shechem raped Dinah, and uh, as a result, the brothers killed all the people of Shechem. Well, according to legend, we know, we know that Dinah kind of became an old maid. She never remarried, and, uh, you know, she uh, ended up dying. But uh, the scriptures doesn't say this, but legend says that this union between her and Shechem, that she did get pregnant. And because it was a pregnancy out of wedlock and also a pregnancy that was with a people group that they weren't supposed to be cohabitating with or having children with, that this child was sort of like a shame uh, to the family and that they gave this child up for adoption. And that it was Potiphar, priest of own, who adopted her into the family. If this is true, this is amazing. It means that Joseph married uh, his niece. And it, and it means that Ephraim and Manasseh are fully Hebrew. Because we always think of Ephraim and Manasseh as being part Hebrew and part Egyptian. So again, I can't validate this. I can't verify this. But I think if this is true, I think this is totally, totally fascinating. Uh, okay. Let me get through my uh, notes here, make sure I'm covering all my bases here. All right. Okay. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. This is paralleling Jesus' baptism. Because Jesus was 30 when he entered the ministry. And after he was baptized, he was sent all over Israel, all over Galilee. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. So you see the parallel between Joseph and Jesus here. Now, Joseph was a teenager when he was sold into Egyptian slavery. That was sort of like the school of hard knocks version of his bar mitzvah. Now, we know a bar mitzvah is when a Hebrew Jewish boy becomes a man or has the status of... We, it's kind of hard to explain because we think of a man, we think that they're independent, can make their own decisions. What this meant of him being a man or, or a 13-year-old boy finally being a man, it means that he could participate without having to consult his parents in religious rituals in the synagogue. It also meant that he is now accountable for his own actions. Prior to 13 years of age, if a kid did something wrong, well, they don't totally understand or know right from wrong yet. So the blame or the guilt lies with the parents, and they make atonement for the child. But once a child turns 13, a boy turns 13, he is now responsible for his own actions, for his own sins. So that's what it means that he was a man. So Joseph became a man 
when he went into Egyptian bondage. Jesus became a man uh, when he was uh, when he kind of uh, ditched his parents after Passover and went to the Jewish temple and started philosophizing with the with the uh, the the rabbis and the sages and the doctors there at the temple. And then Mary and Joseph found him and said, where were you? Why did you scare us like that? He says, didn't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business? So we see the parallel there as well. So Joseph, now when a man turns 30 in a Jewish community, he's, now, he's already been a man since he was 13, but 30 means that you now have merit and authority. So a 13-year-old boy in the Hebrew culture can't really testify in court per se. They can't really have an authoritative leadership type position in the community per se because they're, you know, they're still growing up. They're a man because they're responsible for their own actions, but yet they don't have merit and weight of elderly experience within the community. So when a man turns 30, he can, he can finally be in ministry. He can finally testify in court and it be worth something. He can finally uh, have a profession. And open up a business because 30 years of age represented that you were now an elder and an adult within the community. And so what you say has merit. What you say has authority. So that's another thing. So we see that Jesus went into an authoritative position as rabbi and teacher at the age of 30. And then we see Joseph ascending to the throne of Egypt at the age of 30 as well. Uh, okay. Verse uh, 47 through 49. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. Joseph gathered all the excess of food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. So there were certain cities that, that were designated as uh, storing points and drop-off points for this excess grain and those cities would be the very cities that they would dispense the grain when people from all over the world came during the famine to buy food from the Egyptians. Joseph gathered all the excess of food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. That, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of grain. There was no question they were going to be able to provide for their own people. But when you have an abundance to where you can't even count it anymore or can't even measure it anymore, you know you have enough for the whole world. And uh, so I think that's, that's very interesting, too. So the harvest was so great that it couldn't be accurately counted. It was kind of like if, if I get a bucket of sand and pour it out on the ground and say, okay, guys, count exactly how many grains of sand is in that bucket. You couldn't do it. It would take you forever, and you'd probably lose count halfway through, and you'd have to start all over again. It's nearly impossible. And that's the way it was uh, with the grain. Uh, and also with this abundance of crops, it says, uh, during the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. So we had bumper crops. So God was blessing the Egyptian crops to produce more than it normally would during just a run-of-the-mill year. They were having bumper crops. 
And so we know that God's blessing was upon this and this overabundance of crops, this, these bumper crops, this blessing of the fields probably indicated to Pharaoh and his advisors that, yeah, Joseph's God really is with him, really is blessing him. And it's further confirming the, the interpretation of the dream. And, and, and Joseph is rising greater in, in rank and authority in Egypt and also rising in favor greater with the people of Egypt. At this point, they're like, wow, you know, we, they all heard the story of Joseph, of where he came from, him interpreting the dream and, and his rise to fame and power. But now that they're seeing the, the crops in the field, they're like, wow, this Joseph is really something else. So they're get, he's getting on the good side of the people at this point, but at some point they're going to turn on him. Because, again, he's the front man. He's the one that's going to be blamed that everybody had to sell themselves into slavery in order to live. So we got to, it's a two-edged sword here. Uh, verse 50, two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardships. And my whole family. Verse 52 And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, Jasher says that Joseph was 34 years of age when his sons were born. So you have four years uh, into the. Um, Okay, so if he, if, if he turned 30 when he uh, ascended to the throne, and then he began immediately on this uh, plan to start uh, saving grain, so this was four years into the seven years of plenty. Does that make sense? And according to the book of Jasher, Ephraim and Manasseh were twins. Because twins ran in the family of Israel. You had Jacob and Esau. You know, you had, um, I forget their names, but one that had the red cord around his arm, uh, Perez, and I forget the names, but they were twins. So you, can't, you always have these twins showing up uh, in the scriptures. So according to Jasher, even though the canonical scriptures doesn't specifically say this, according to Jasher, um, Ephraim and Manasseh were twins. And Manasseh was ob obviously born first because he's called the firstborn. And we see later on when uh, Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, he switches his hands, and Joseph's like, no, 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 Father, this one's the firstborn. He's like, I know, I know, I know. I'm not as senile as you think I am. I know what I'm doing. And so he puts Ephraim over Manasseh because he, Jacob, was the secondborn. He was the one who came out second, grabbing on the heel of Esau. So he's carrying on that tradition of the secondborn you know, getting, getting the prominent position. So Ephraim was put above Manasseh, or will be. So Manasseh, uh, we see that the name Manasseh, it says in the scriptures, God has made me forget all my hardships and my whole family. So here Joseph breaks with his past and buries it and somehow for, finds reconciliation for, from his past. Because up to this point, I think Joseph was probably still a little bit bitter 
of his brothers turning against him, selling him into slavery, and all the, 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 the tribulation he went through from being a slave to being a prisoner. Now he's second in command of Egypt. He has, wife, he has a wife. He has kids. Life is good. So he breaks with his past. He's like, this is my new life now. I'm going to forget about my past. God has blessed me. And you know, now I think he's seeing that all this bad stuff that happened to him was working out for his good, which reminds us, of what Paul would write in the future in Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So here we kind of see an indication of Joseph maturing. He started out as a cocky young teenager, thinking he was better than everybody else, knowing that he was daddy's favorite, knowing that he was going to be patriarch of the family one day. And then he gets double-crossed by his brothers, sold into Egyptian slavery. And through this process of being a slave and being a prisoner and rising to power in Egypt, we see that Joseph matures. And he matures to the point to where I think he makes a break with his past and forgives what his brothers did to him because now he's in a good place. He's in a good position. And he had to forgive his brothers at this point because during the time of famine, his brothers would come. And if he didn't totally forgive them, he would probably take out his vengeance upon him. And many people think that he did by the way Joseph treated his brothers, but he wasn't taking vengeance out upon his brothers at this point. He was testing them to see if his brothers had changed, to see if his brothers had anything against Benjamin and against you know, uh, uh, the son of Rachel. So he wanted to know if they were repentant and remorseful for what happened with him in the past. Getting a little bit ahead of myself there. Now Ephraim... It says, Ephraim says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. You got to have a little pain before you can get a little gain. You have to suffer a little bit before you can understand what triumph is. God has made me fruitful, and that's what Ephraim means, fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here we see that as with Manasseh, Joseph is breaking from his past, and Ephraim, he is embracing his future. He's embracing the future, and we can tell by that name. Okay, verses uh, 33. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. More proof, more checkmark that Joseph has a special connection with his God. And everybody knew it because his words came to pass. He's being seen by the people as some type of a prophet and holy man as well. Which is kind of what the, the linen garments represent as well. Because who wore linen garments besides nobility and royalty? It was priests, people who had a special spiritual connection. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said, and there was famine everywhere, in every land. But in the land of Egypt, there was food. Now, we see that famine in this part of the world is cyclical. There was a famine during Abraham's day, and Abraham had to go to Egypt. There was a famine in Isaac's day, and Isaac, too, had to go to Egypt. And so here we have Jacob and Joseph. Jacob, through his sons, had to go to Egypt because of the famine. So there was some sort of cyclical weather pattern that, that, that crops up in this area of the world to where every so often it's almost predictable when a famine is going to occur or take place. Because we've seen it with the patriarchs before and we see it now. 
And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said. There was famine in every land, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When the whole land of Egypt was stricken with famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told Egypt, go to Joseph. See? You know, Joseph is, or Pharaoh's like, yep, I'm still Pharaoh. I'm still king. I'm still in charge. But you know who to go to. Don't come to me with this. I gave Joseph the authority to do this. So uh, it says, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. So here we see Pharaoh putting himself back and is starting to shift the blame of whatever is going to come as a result of this famine upon Joseph. So Joseph, if something bad happens, he becomes the bad guy. Verse uh, 36. Now the famine had spread across the whole region, so Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land. Every land came to Joseph, so all the 70 nations came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in the land. All right, so uh, verse 36, now the famine had spread across the whole region. Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. So the rich felt the pinch, and they were not accustomed to feeling suffering and hunger and lack. So we can even see how even now they may start to begin to feel a little bit resentful in a sense towards Joseph because of their desperate situation. Verse 37, every land that came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain for the famine was severe in the land. Uh, Let's see, this is the wealth stored up that will be given to Israel in the exodus when they plunder the Egyptians when they leave. So all this money and all this wealth that was being given to the Egyptians from the Egyptians themselves and from uh, all the people around the world who was buying grain in order to survive the famine, uh, the rabbis believe that this is part of the wealth that's being stored up to pay Israel back for the years of slavery they endure in the future when that Pharaoh comes to the throne who doesn't know who Joseph was. And so when they leave Egypt, if you remember, the death of the firstborn caused all the Egyptians to thrust the Israelites out. They're like, leave, leave. And then Moses said, ask of your neighbor. And they were willing to give them anything they wanted because it's like, yeah, take whatever you want and leave because if you don't, our firstborns die. What's next, the secondborn? We're all going to die if you don't get out of here. So take whatever you want and get the heck out of here. So this wealth that was being accumulated because of the the famine and people buying grain is believed by the rabbis to be part of that fortune that Israel leaves with in the Exodus as they plunder the Egyptians without even firing a shot. Okay, we'll go ahead and wrap it up, and uh, let's close with a word of prayer. And next week we'll go to Genesis 42. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the awesomeness of your word and being able to dig into your word a little bit deeper and to gain a little bit more understanding and for not only the the scriptures themselves that open themselves up, but for the other resources we have of of language, of culture, of archaeology, of extra biblical and rabbinical texts that sheds greater light on the passages that we're reading. And we can get a deeper, more broader, more thorough uh, understanding of these scriptures. So, Lord, show us ways that we can take these scriptures and apply them to our lives and become more faithful and more trusting and more submissive to you in everything that we say and do. 
Lord, bless the service that we're about to uh, go into, that your presence would be uh, manifest and known and felt there, that people's hearts and minds would be touched by the word that you have to give to the people today, and that people would walk out of this sanctuary different than what they came in. Lord, we love you and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.